this. And you're to hear what your spirit has to say in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Hebrews 6. How many of you have been waiting for this? Yeah. No, you don't want to raise your hand. But Hebrews 6 is a passage, and maybe you're like, well, what is it? I don't know. Well, when you read it, you're like, yeah, what about that? It's one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Um, I'm not going to explore all the ideas. Um, I'm going to present to you um, uh, one view that I think is gives us a, in the easiest time interpreting this passage in its context while still being true to the rest of scripture. So we're gonna take a look at that. The title of today's study is A Weighty Warning. So challenging passage, the context of this is important. It's really good that Hebrews, uh, or the content of Hebrews six comes at chapter six and not in chapter one. Because for five chapters, we've been learning that this group of believers, these Hebrew Christian believers, that they were wondering, well, maybe we ought to go back to the temple. Maybe Jesus isn't enough. I mean, what about Moses? And I mean, angels brought the message before. And so his whole argument has been, Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is better than your old high priest. He is everything you need. So we develop in that an understanding that they were struggling leaving the Levitical system that was established under Moses that was ordained by God for a period of time. It had a start date and it had a finish date. And in between the start date and the finish date, it was the way to approach God. It was the way to come and have, uh, to make offering for your sin. It was a way to be renewed before the Lord. It was a way to come in repentance before God is inside that Levitical worship system that happened at the temple. Can't argue against it. It's the way you had to come. And if you didn't want to come that way and you decided you wanted to come some other way than through the Levitical system, God would not recognize it. This was the way in which you had to come. But now that Jesus has fulfilled it all and these things have been abolished, those that were used to having them and all the culture and all the years of family that had walked out worship in that way, Now this group of people, they're the generation where it comes to an end, and they're having a challenge to know what to do. I believe that context is vital to us properly understanding this passage. Bottom line, I'm going to give us two bumper rails um, through this passage because it is difficult. On the one side, um, we should be sufficiently warned to continue on with Jesus Christ. Secondly, we should understand that God is still merciful and he receives people that are repenting of their sin. These two thoughts are biblical, they're easily proven, and we will come back to them again. But let's read the passage. We'll begin there at chapter six, and I wanna read down to uh, verse nine just so you can see it, and we'll come back next time and, and, and get that, but at least include it in our reading today. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And here's where it gets tricky. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And he gives an analogy. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So in verses one through three, he talks about his desire to move beyond the basics. And that was a thought that began there in chapter five, around verse 12. Um, He says, you ought to be teachers by now, but rather than being in a place where you could teach and instruct others in the faith, you actually are needing to have the, the basic principles, the ABCs and the one, two, threes of the Christian faith laid down again. In verses one through three, he talks about leaving these elementary principles behind, not abandoning them, but moving on beyond them. Not that they ever go away because they make up a part of the foundation of our faith. So you need the foundation. You need the ABCs and the one, two, threes if you're gonna spell and if you're gonna write and you're gonna calculate. But you gotta do more than that. And that's his point. So it's not to say set these things aside. It's to let's go building upon them. That's our foundation. Now let's let's add a superstructure of thought and understanding and biblical truth to these things. And he lists six truths that he puts together in what appear to be pairs. You have repentance and faith, baptism and the laying on of hands, resurrection and eternal judgment. And you can see similarities in each of these couplets. Repentance and faith, that's how you come to the Lord in salvation. Baptism, uh, plural, baptisms and laying on of hands. Well, this is some ceremonies. These are things that would happen in the context of the life of the church. And then resurrection and eternal judgment. These speak of last things. These speak of the life to come. And these six items are the, the elementary principles. I, I don't know that we should say that this is the only six. Some have argued that these very well might have been part of um, a catechism that was taught in the early church. I don't know how you know that. Um, yeah, I guess it's possible but they certainly are foundational principles. Repentance from dead works. You know, legalism, false religion, and sin. You gotta repent of all of that when you come to Christ. You can't bring your sin into the, to the relationship, say, well, I'm gonna follow you, but I'm just not gonna give this up. Or, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring Jesus on as well to my, my uh, system of belief. He'll be a nice addition. Jesus is not willing to be a nice addition. You've gotta repent of those dead works. You gotta repent of that false belief system that you grew up in or that you had embraced to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So repentance from dead works, faith. This is trusting the Lord. We believe that Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, and that he can forgive sins. And so as we repent, we believe in him to actually cleanse us. Without repentance, Without faith, there is no salvation. 
You cannot have salvation unless you are walking in repentance and faith towards God. The next couplet of baptisms and laying on of hands, of course, it says it's a plural form of baptism. So um, whether this is just uh, you know, a baptism in contrast to other forms of baptisms, I tend to think that of the other baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament, like the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that, that power. There's being baptized into the body of Christ. What happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus? You are immersed into the body of Christ. Um, there's the baptism of um, trials that we go through. And then the laying on of hands and commissioning of service. Paul says, I laid hands on you, Timothy. Uh, we see hands being laid upon people when they are healed. Uh, we see hands being laid upon people. Um, Acts chapter 8, when they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit there in, in Samaria. So these are some of the ways in which laying on of hands happened. Now, if you're a Jew, one of the ways you would have been familiar with the laying on of hands is when you went to the temple and you brought your lamb and you brought that lamb as a, a sin offering, one of the things you would do bef- once it's accepted and before it is sacrificed, one of the things you would have to do is you would place your hand on its head, you lay hands on it, and it represented that transference of your sinful guilt onto that innocent lamb, and then that lamb would be put to death because of your sin. And so that might, might be in view as well. Of course, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And as he hung upon the cross, the world placed their hands on him. And the guilt of the world was transferred to him. Um, Resurrection, we have the hope of a new body and living forever in the presence of the Lord. That's positive. Um, Eternal judgment, because we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we do not have to be concerned about one day encountering the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us. He bore the wrath of the Father on himself. Read Isaiah 53 again. How it pleased, Lord, to bruise him. This is amazing language. The Father could find any pleasure in that. How can you understand that? Well, in doing this, he didn't have to bring judgment upon us. So these are the elementary truths of the the Christian faith. We should all be familiar with aspects of these elementary principles. But we need to move on. Now in verses four through six, we come to that weighty warning that we have named our, our study after. He says, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted. And he goes through a list of their experiences, verse six, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Again, most would agree that this is, if not the most, one of the most difficult passages to understand. And um, one commentary I read had 10 possible interpretations. Now, on five of them, you can immediately dismiss them all because they're just goofiness. It's like, that's not, I mean, that shouldn't even be a, a point. But we're gonna take a look at a couple of these views and and see if we can understand it. But one of the views that is out there, and it's an old view, goes back all the way to the the third century, and um, I'm gonna quote from uh, F.F. Bruce in his commentary as he quotes from others. The author of Hebrews wrote F.C. Burkett, will allow no forgiveness 
for Christian sinners. In this, he was following the rigorous interpretation of Tertullian, who quotes the opening verses of Hebrews 6 to prove there can be no pardon or restoration to communion for post-baptismal sin. Does that bother anybody in here besides me? Have you sinned since you got saved? Yes, you have. Just nod your head. Maybe you're not with us yet. Just nod your head. You have. Since you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have sinned. The idea, now, now Tertullian will go on to say, and that one particular sin was sin of fornication or adultery. I don't know how he gets there. Certainly not, nothing in the text. But that is one view. It's not a view I hold to. I don't think this is the case. Uh, the second view that I want to uh, think about just briefly here is that this passage, this warning, this weighty warning, is, it's not real. It's hypothetical. It's a hypothetical that could never, ever take place. Well, what's the point of that? And there's no point to even, I mean, say that. It's just, so this is something that could happen but never could happen. And that's the point there. The third view is to say that this group of people were never really saved. Well, you got a real problem when you get to verse 9. I read verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. So when you read the first five chapters of the book of Hebrews, you never once think that Paul is speaking to un Paul, whoever the author was. You never once think that he is speaking to unbelievers that need to get saved. But when you get to chapter six, this passage kind of hits you like a, you know, a tsunami. It's like, wait a minute. If, I, if somebody sins, they can't come back to Jesus and find forgiveness? What could this mean? Well, it's hypothetical. Or it's, yeah, you're right. So don't ever sin because if you do, you're done. Or they say, well, these people were never really saved in the first place. Well, when I read that a description of them, how they were enlightened and tasted, of the heavenly gift. They had become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word and the powers of the age to come. There was nobody was thinking, yeah, sounds like an unbeliever to me. Because all of those things sound like our experience in Christ. Now, some, they will argue, hey, this is like that group that in the last day will stand before Jesus and say, didn't we prophesy your name? Didn't we preach? Didn't we cast out demons? And say, it is that, it's that same kind of a experience. Well, okay, I mean, I, I, I can see where that could be argued out. I don't think that is the case here, but I can at least understand it. But it's that first view that is so troubling. And I think that's where a lot of people can get so tripped up and maybe would even walk away having read this or having heard an improper uh, teaching on this and to think, well, I sinned and therefore I can never be right with Jesus again. It's kind of like uh, a one-time offer uh, to get renewed, but don't ever blow it. When Rebecca and myself were in Australia, we had gotten there, and um, I had been there like for about four or five months ahead of time. We got married, we came back together, and um, I made a two-year commitment, and somebody, it was one man in the church actually, he said, well, I'll give you $24,000 for the next two years, so $12,000 a year. When I got there, I was like 21, 22 years old. Um, he had the check for 12,000. He goes, all right, here's the check. And I reached out and he goes, and there is no more. 
He goes, I'm going to give it to you, you know, once, and then I'll give it to you again, and that's it. If you blow this money, there is no more. The bank is not open. So you better figure out this is what I want you to do. Then I did exactly, and we didn't, we didn't blow the money. It wasn't much, but we managed it. But could you imagine if that's the way it was with your salvation? Man, at what point in time? And, and of course, nobody's going to be really comfortable, so you're going to start to make this like hierarchy of sins that you can't. So if, did anybody go I, one mile over the speed limit? on your way to church. Anybody, is anybody a lawbreaker? Is anybody a sinner in here? I mean, can you get for, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Has anybody ever, you know, gotten angry when you should have, there was really, you thought you knew the circumstances, you got angry, but you found out later those weren't the circumstances and now you've already lost, well, you're out? I mean, you're off team Jesus, he's done with you? Well, the fourth view, no, is the answer. The fourth view, and this is a view that I'm, I'm going to adopt here, is it without problems? Uh, no, there's some challenges, but it answers more questions than any of the others. So the fourth view that I want to present um, is that this is a warning applying to specific Jewish believers who are looking at returning to the Levitical system of animal sacrifices to deal with their sin. And that, we, we know that's the case. We know that's who they are. We know that's what they're contemplating. And everything is being written to try and address that issue. Again, the Levitical offertory system was ordained by God, and it was a way to have your sins covered and to be uh, propitiated and you must bring that sacrifice, and if you didn't do that, there was no sacrifice for sin. But then it ended, and once it ended, at the coming of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you no longer did that, but they had to mentally transition through that. So now they're being rejected by family, they're being persecuted at work, nobody wants to buy their shoes anymore that they're making, and they are under persecution, and they feel this temptation to go back into the Levitical system. And it's to them that I believe he's saying, if you do this, there's no more forgiveness in that system. It once used to renew you. It once used to be a place where you could come and repent there at the temple and bringing your sacrifice before the Lord. But today, it's impossible, or, or, verse four, um, it's impossible for those who are once enlightened have tasted all these things, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. So that's, that's the heart of, of the, the thought. We'll come back to it again and develop it just a little bit more. But I want you to turn ahead a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to read to you verses 24 through 29. You're familiar with verses 24 and 25. But verses 26 through 29, it helps us see a parallel passage and that this idea that they were going back to offer up sacrifices really was at the heart of what's going on. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully... So that sounds kind of like what they're doing in, in chapter six. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Where? At the temple. But a certain and fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So them going back to the temple is, is not going to produce forgiveness of sin. It's actually going to end up in fiery judgment because they are rejecting the, the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. This was full-blown apostasy from Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was a man, not Christ, not the Messiah. Let's look for a new one. And so for them, what could they possibly do? Now, verses four and five, um, it gives a description of them, right? They're enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, uh, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. All of these things, to me, sound like a, a very impressive list of experiences that people had in their walk with Jesus Christ. To dismiss and say, well, hey, these things are not, um, these are not indicators of salvation. Well, they are for me. I mean, I look at this and it's like, yeah, I, I've been enlightened. <laughs> I understand that Jesus is, 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 is the Savior. I've come into a relationship with him. The light has turned on in my life because I've come to Jesus. I have this, this gift of salvation in Christ. I know about that gift. I've received it. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I'm a partaker of it. I've tasted of the gospel, the good word of God. I believe it with all my heart and of the powers of the age to come. Well, I mean, that's a little harder to kind of lay your hands around exactly what that may be saying. But thinking of the resurrection, thinking of all these things, I believe in those things. That, that is my hope. And so this description does not sound like to me a group of people who don't know the Lord. But in verse 6, we read that it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Well, we've been developing this point. But if you walk away from Jesus... And you go back into the temple. And by the way, at this time in history, the temple is still standing. It's going to fall in 70 AD, and there will never be another sacrifice offered on that temple, even to this present second. There's never been another offering. But I don't think that's what's in view there. That is another theory. But I don't think that's what's in view here. I think it's just these believers saying, we're done with Jesus. We're going to go back to Aaron, we're going to go back to these offerings. What, what a, a disgrace that would be for Jesus. Hey, weren't you a, one of those Christ followers? Didn't you believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he's the final sacrifice? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and, you know, the shame that Jesus went through on the cross, if you, go, if you abandon Jesus and you go back into the Levitical system, then that means he's not the Messiah, so now you're looking for another Messiah, and when that next Messiah comes, you expect him to be crucified again? That's not gonna happen. He's already come and he's already been crucified. You need to embrace him, his name is Jesus, and you need to make certain that you do not walk away from him. Here's 
something that's just a summary thought for me. It says, temple worship no longer provides an adequate sacrifice for sin. The cleansing that previously came by way of the Levitical system is no longer recognized by God. Jesus is the fulfillment. They were a shadow of things, but Jesus is the fulfillment. So they could go back if they wanted, and they could have somebody buying their shoes again, and they could sit down at the family table again, and they could be welcomed in the community, but they were, ne- they were not going to have forgiveness. So why never be renewed? Because in that system, if that's what they're clinging to, it's a system that's dead. It's a system, it, is, it wasn't when it was established, but now, if you try to walk out, it's a dead system of works that will not accomplish salvation. So this is, this is the exhortation that is giving to them is that you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, there are those who, who think about walking away from the Lord and, um, and it's like, no, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I'm done with him. And they became atheists or they pick up some other religion. Um, you know, in that other religion and that other philosophy that they've embraced, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin outside of the name of Jesus Christ. This passage, however, and I think this is an important just way in which I, and not just I, but the way I interpret scripture, especially when it's difficult, is not just what is it saying, and I just told you what I think it's saying, but let's also do this. What is it not saying? It's not saying what Tertullian said, that don't ever sin after your baptism, otherwise you can't ever be forgiven. So I guess don't get baptized is what I would glean from that guy. But, you know, then you're in contract, you know, contradiction with Jesus saying that we need to be baptized. But I want you to think for a moment, is the idea that a Christian who has not apostatized, not said, I'm done with Jesus, I need to look for another savior, not that, but the Christian who sins, who drove 36 in the 35. I know you were going downhill, but anyways, you broke the law. Or, you know, you lost your temper. Or, you know, you, you became angry in your heart. You lusted. Whatever it was that, you, you didn't handle your finances well. You've been walking in materialism. You haven't repented of, of um, you know, the unforgiveness. If there's no way to ever be forgiven. It's impossible to be renewed again. Well, that's not what the passage is saying. And we have a lot of good evidence for it. I think the strongest evidence is this. Think of the book of Revelation and chapters two and three. How many churches are being written to in chapters two and three? Seven churches. In most of those seven churches, there is a strong exhortation for those believers to repent. Read them for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Go read them on your own. And you will see the things they were doing and the Lord will call them to repentance. If believers can't repent, then why is the king of heaven, Jesus, calling to churches to repent? So it's clear. The Old Testament is full. I know it's not the church, but the Old Testament in principle shows that God continually calls his people, Israel, to repentance and to be renewed so let me get this straight 
Under the Levitical system, I could come year after year. I could come every month and offer up a lamb for uh, my sin, and that would cover me. But in Jesus Christ, he died on the cross once for all, but if I blow it once, it's no good? Then that means that the Levitical system is more advantageous to me than Jesus is. Do you see the problem with that? But that is not the case at all. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I realize this is referring to people that are coming to faith, and it's not talking about a sinner who's repent, a believing sinner who's repented, but nonetheless, the principle is so clear. God's patient, and God wants us to come in repentance to him. But 1 John 2, 1 and 2 is written to believers and is speaking of them. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and you will, that's kind of the idea of the if here, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So the contrast between the believing and the world. And he says, if you sin, and we do. Later on in John it says, he who says that he does not sin is a liar. We sin, and yet we have an advocate. So to take this idea that because you sinned, you went down a certain road, and now God will never receive you back to himself. That is not what this passage is teaching. It's saying if you want to go back and hang out in the Levitical system that is dead and gone, you will never find the forgiveness that it used to provide to you in that system. Now, that, that is what I believe that passage is saying. Doesn't answer every question, but it, it addresses, I think, the biggest issue of like, so a backslidden believer can't get saved? So my son or daughter who's walked away from the Lord, if they, I've been praying for them to come back, they can't come back? No, they can come back. They can come back. But they've got to come back to Jesus. They can't hang out in another system. You know, well, I believe all roads lead to salvation. No, no, no. They don't, it's only one, it's, his name is Jesus. It's very narrow, where you can find that forgiveness of sin. Now, we move into verses seven and eight, and verses seven and eight become an illustration of what he's just talked about. He says, for the earth which drinks in the rain, read rain as God's blessing. The earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated. Receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So these hearts, these fields represent two fields here, the heart of mankind. The rain comes down, the gospel comes down, the message of Jesus Christ comes down upon that heart. In some hearts, the result is going to be a well-cultivated field that's going to receive the word of God and they're going to come to salvation and they're going to bear fruit in their life. Others will hear the gospel and they will flatly reject it and they want nothing to do with it. Now the blessing has come down upon both hearts, but only one is actually 
um, in the Lord. The other is outside of the Lord. And so he's giving us this uh, illustration from agriculture, which is to help us understand the above warning. You know, if they will remain in the blessing of the Lord and the rain, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to bear fruit. But if they want to go and they want to reject that, then don't be surprised if your heart begins to be filled with all kinds of briars and thorns, which the Lord will not receive. You might want to write down as a cross reference, Isaiah chapter five, I'll say the opening seven verses, you'll find it. Just might want to read that on your own. It's the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel and how he planted them as a vineyard. But I do want to go to another vineyard passage. Turn with me to John chapter 15. And we're wrapping it up here. And we get to share in communion in just a moment. But John 15. I'm answering the question of how do we make certain that our life bears fruit that is pleasing to God. And Jesus spoke in great detail about this in this chapter. Jesus is gonna tell us that the key to being fruitful is to abide or remain in him. And he's gonna give an illustration of a vineyard. He says, I am the true vine, verse one, John 15, one. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He's the one that owns the field. Every branch in me, that would be believers, um, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Very similar to our passage in Hebrews, that illustration that's given. Now you have the two fills. You're talking about fruitfulness or unfruitful. And he says, if you leave Jesus and you, you're done with him as Messiah and him atoning for your sins, well then it's not gonna go well. It's gonna be curses and fiery judgment. And, and what Jesus says here is, if people don't want to abide in me and remain in me and be a part of me, then the result is they're gonna be burned up. There's not going to be fruit. So the key is, how do we remain and be that first filled? And the answer is by abiding in Jesus. What does it mean practically to remain in Christ? Well, I mean, your allegiance and your worship is fully directed to him. You're not looking to anyone else. Beyond that, it means we are people that are praying. What's that? We're talking to the Lord. We're in communion and conversation with him. It means we're reading the word. As we read the word, it's, it's nourishing us. It's giving us the, the sap and the nutrients. It's giving us the moisture that we need to produce fruit in our life. We need to be obeying him. We need to be walking in obedience to the commandments. And all of these things speak of us remaining in him and remaining in his word. 
And the result is you will bear fruit. Now, the, the picture here is of a vineyard. If you've ever gone walking through a vineyard, I know what you have never, ever heard. You've never heard this, the, the, the grunt and the strain of the vine to push out grapes. You know, oh, there's one. Now that, you don't hear that. It just naturally happens. If the vine is, the branches are connected to the vine and planted in good soil, it will bear fruit, right? It's what, it, it's what happens. And if you are connected as a branch in the vine, which is in a good field, Jesus, you're going to bear fruit. You know, we sometimes think, man, I need more fruit in my life. Yes, I understand that. There should probably be more fruit in my life too. But do you know how we do that? It's by abiding in Jesus. It's not on a goal, I've got to get these 10 fruits in my life by the end of the year. No, no, no. Maybe the Lord can show you that you're lacking in fruit, but how you go about getting the fruit is by remaining in him, abiding in him. And maybe your life today looks more like a branch that's been cut off and laying next to the vine rather than one that's actually drawing from the vine. But here's the thing. God is glorified in that we bear much fruit. It's what he wants. So if you will just remain in Jesus, the branches of your spiritual life will hang low to the ground. They will be weighed down with that fruitfulness. God's blessings are continually falling upon the people of God. We must be diligent to receive those blessings and make use of this, which will lead to a fruitful field in our life. You know, this passage is meant to be a warning. This is not the passage to teach assurance of salvation on. Okay? And I say that because I, you know, and I knew it would be the case. I picked up and I read commentaries I had never read before. just wanted to see. And if I was to put a weight of information, maybe not word count, but weight of strongest and most significant statements, it was about how this could, could not possibly mean that a believer loses his salvation. Okay, that's a different subject here, but that's not what this passage is about. The passage is not about assuring a person of their salvation. It's, we're going to get to that in verse 9. But these verses are meant to be a warning. So if I'm teaching on assurance of salvation, which I am happy and glad to do, then I shouldn't turn that passage into a warning passage. Well, I can't assure them too much because if I assure them too much, you know what, they might go and sin. So I know it's an encouraging passage of assurance, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to warn them. Well, the same way, that's not what the passage is saying. Teach what the passage is saying. I, I, people say, you know, sometimes I can't figure out, Troy, what you're saying. You, you teach one passage, and it's like the strong warning about continuing in the Lord. You read another passage, and it's, a, you know, it's an encouragement you know, that nobody could ever pluck us out of the hand of the Lord. Well, it depends on what I'm teaching. It depends on what I'm teaching. And this passage is meant to be, and I would say, is one of the strongest warnings in all of the New Testament. So while I don't believe this is communicating, hey, you sinned last night, Jesus is done with you. I don't believe it's doing that. I do believe it's a warning that we got to stay in Christ. 
We, our allegiance must stay with him. And for some of you, that's not a problem. But for some of you, that is. Because you're actually contemplating walking away from Christ. You're actually thinking, maybe Christianity isn't everything that I thought it was. And I need to get out there. And maybe I'll just grab me a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, a little bit of you know, my own ideas. Hey, if you do that, if you go out there, you can't find forgiveness of your sin. Because forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. You've got to stay in Christ. So this is not a passage at all that is meant to do anything other than to warn us to be true to Jesus. Now, in verse 9, he does go on and say, now I know, you guys, I believe better things about you than what I just spoke of. But there must have been some that he was concerned about. So keep pressing on in your faith. Keep remaining in Christ. Allow the fruit to come from your life. Not because you have you know, worked so hard, but because you have drawn so close to Jesus. And you will naturally, supernaturally, bear the fruit that he is looking for and will bring him glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son. And we just want to say, we believe in him. We trust him. We are grateful, Lord, that you have made a sacrifice for us, that we might come and be clean. And so, Lord, we want to worship you. And, Lord, as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup that was prepared by your son, Jesus, at that last supper for us, I pray our hearts would be filled with the joy of salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.